I'm Alex Sherman, a media reporter at CNBC, and I'm pleased to be joined by Jeff Bucus, former head of HBO and later on CEO of Time Warner. We all know HBO, it's on television. So you're watching it, you think it's all that, and it must be that how it became so different, and to the extent that people like it, you know, it's the programming. It must be all about the programming. That's how it differentiated itself. That's not how it started. It started as the only pay, pay TV service. It was the only network that anybody had ever tried that got off the ground where it wasn't supported by advertising. And this right. is in the 70s, yep. which was when the big three networks, CBS, ABC, NBC, they had 95% of the viewing. And basically, you know, they had all the money, they had all the stars. So HBO comes up and we have this idea, we're gonna have programming on the TV that isn't supported by advertising. Yep. Gotta be, so people had to choose to buy it. But there's the first problem because if you're gonna, if your house is gonna take HBO and the other 10 on the street are not gonna take HBO, how do you distinguish your house who's paying from all the other ones? It can't be on broadcast, it can't go over the air. So the origin of HBO in the dim past is you had to have a totally new way to get television to people's homes, which was off a satellite, right. down to a cable dish, that then people wired through the streets to get there. And in the first, because HBO started in 72, for the first. And you started there what year? 79. 79. So I came in 79. Yeah. We had been on the satellite already for, I think, three years by then. But if you go to the late 70s, when HBO started to become noticed, we didn't get to a million subscribers until 1979, 80. Um, the only place you could put it and have it in your house was basically places that had cable TV. And why did they have cable TV? Because they were either rural in the mountains because you could not get a television signal. So yeah. you needed the antenna to get CBS, ABC, and NBC, and then you could buy HBO on top. Or you're in New York City or San Francisco where the buildings are blocking right. you. So you had these two audiences, and if you think about the way people view HBO programming today, which is cutting edge, et cetera, that is not what people were looking for back in 1970 in the rural mountains. Yes. And even a lot It of isn't today. No, it's not actually. Right. So, yeah. So, yeah. If, so basically the first thing with HBO was it was a company where a lot of the effort that made it become the leader and this is very similar to Netflix, which is more of a tech story than a programming story in terms of its first, uh, how did it get to the top? The, uh, how did HBO become a leader? It had the best distribution sales force that was going around trying to get cable operators to either put it in their systems or to build a cable system. And as that all exploded in the 80s, and it exploded with HBO as the first thing on the satellite, TBS, the superstation, Ted Turner, ended up in our company, but it wasn't then. That was the second one. And the third big one was MTV, if we remember that. Yeah, sure. And so these are back in the days, you know, very early days, and the programming that was attracting people to literally go in their pocket and decide, you know, I've got free TV at CBS, NBC, ABC, I'm gonna pay money to get television. Remember when I told my friends, I'm going to work 
at HBO, what's that? I told him, TV, you, you got to pay for it. He said, yeah, so you're, you're going you're gonna, you're gonna to get fired. Nobody's going to pay for TV. Why would you pay for TV? What does it have? Well, here's what it had. It had uncut Hollywood movies. And so did Showtime, and so did what became Stars. And they had exactly the same ones. So when people think, well, why did HBO get to the top? Which it was. It became, you know, 60 or 70% of, of the national pay TV in the 80s. It clearly wasn't the, the programming because we had the same movies they had. So that's how it started. And then once, and people forget this, to be able to get an uncut Hollywood movie with none of the stuff taken out of it, uh, no commercials, uh, no language editing, all of that, the only way you could do that until 1985, basically, was you had to get HBO or Showtime or Stars. Whose idea was it to say, you know what we should do with a little bit of that leftover money? Original scripted content. No, no, that's a lot later. All right. Because so, that's maybe five, well, seven No, I'll later, tell you when it was. So in the beginning, when we were fighting over the movie rights, they were very expensive, you know, yeah. and we'd have all these, we'd have affiliate deals and then deals to get the movies. Um, the studios, as more and more that HBO Showtime got bigger, the more the movie studios started to say, holy shit, this is a problem maybe. We, these guys are starting to make money off of our movies. We ought to shut them down and start one of our own. So they started a uh, movie service called Premiere that was going to be a consortium of the very Hollywood studios that were selling us and Showtime uh -huh. the movies. No, we filed an antitrust suit against that and beat them because, of course, they had colluded and agreed how to restrain trade and work amongst each other to not sell to us or make it so we couldn't afford it, all of which is a violation of antitrust. So they were doing that. We were using all our movies, our money for the movie supply and the cable operators. Now you got to get to them. They didn't care about our original programming. They didn't think that was going to amount to anything. They were like, fine, but, you know, a little bit of boxing if you have, you know, Rumble in the Jungle with yes. Ali, which was 74, it's pretty early. Yeah. That's a big deal, yeah. you know. And occasionally some other heavyweight fights we had. You had a big concert. I see. Giant so you had boxing right at the beginning. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was uh, Michael and Seth's idea yep. to do that. They did it very well. Um, the concerts was uh, Michael's idea, and we became the number one venue on television for, for concerts. The comedy, also Michael's idea. Um, you know, we were basically doing whatever the big budget networks weren't interested in, right. or they couldn't do it because they'd annoy the, you know, more conservative tastes in the Midwest, or they'd piss off Ford Motor Company or yeah. something like that. Yeah. We didn't have to worry about that. So we were kind of rolling, and we, but we, we had a, uh, again, I got to go, and I hope I'm uh, conveying Michael's thinking, which I agreed with, um, we all did, in the 70s and 80s, like, we don't have enough money to make actual scripted series yet. I mean, the networks each have 30 of them a week. You know, they got big budgets, big stars. We also know that when you're the networks, and they would do up pilot season, they would only get one out of five on, so that's a lot of loss. 
they'd launch whatever got accepted, and I don't know what the, I think the death rate of new pilots on the networks was at least Huge. three to one, five yeah. to one. We can't afford that, we don't, we don't have money for that. Yeah. So uh, we didn't go into series uh, as, long as, as long as we could, we basically avoided it. We didn't really do the first big series until 92. Uh, again, that was under Michael, and it was still something that all of us are the proudest of. Maybe one of our best shows we ever did, which is Larry Sanders yep. and uh, Dream On. We called it the best hour on TV. Yep. And the joke that, you know, I used to tweak Michael about it. I loved it, but it was like, yeah, the best hour on TV. It literally is almost only one hour, because we only had, <laughs> we had 10 half hours a year, 10 half hours a year. Yeah. of Dream on Larry Sanders. Now it was huge in the culture. And then Blockbuster comes and basically takes our entire selling proposition, uncut Hollywood movies in your home, and they go earlier. They're now available to you yeah. six months before HBO. They're also uncut. And here's the next, the key thing, the big, big, you know, problem. They're on demand, you can watch them whenever you want. You slip them in your machine, you want to stop and make dinner, you want to go to the bathroom. That was a huge advantage. And what that led to, this has really started to get big blockbuster in the late 80s. We're sitting aside HBO saying to ourselves, we're screwed. Our number one reason why people subscribe to HBO is, is now being taken you know, by blockbuster. And what are we gonna do? We're gonna have to do the thing we were always afraid we couldn't scale that mountain range. We're gonna have to do original series. But how are we gonna do that? Because the networks have way bigger budgets. We've got enough money for maybe three of them, four of them. They got 30 a year, each of them. And uh, ours have to be different. How, how are they gonna be different? And we, we thought, well, there's two ways. One's tech and one's programming. The tech one is we need to make HBO video on demand. We need to do what NBC, CBS can't do. We need to make the HBO service, everything that's on there, on demand. So if you're at home and you want to watch The Sopranos when you want to watch it, you can. You know, you don't need to be tethered to nine o'clock. Yeah. But the second thing is if we're going to create on demand, CBS can't do it. They can't do it over a broadcast because that signal goes to every house at the same time. We can do it individualized because we have we can use the cable wire to do that. So we have a huge advantage. Well, if to pay for that, we got to get every cable operator to do it. It was a big deal technically to get the U.S. cable industry to do this. It cost a lot of money, but that means we can make series that are not one-offs. We can make series like. Uh, Band of Brothers, Soprano, something where you, where it's sequential. You know, you, in other words, um, no network, the big ones, for any big budget show, we're, we're making anything that wasn't self-contained. So in other words, if you didn't watch the show last week, Law and Order or Pick Your Show, you could watch it this week. It was a totally new, different episode. It didn't depend on the plot from last week. We're going, all right, we're going to make basically long form, we're going to make movies. We're going to make movies that are a season long, five seasons long. Yeah. And so you, need, you, you can't watch Sopranos 
if you didn't see last, the last episode. That would never work in broadcast TV, but it gives us the ability to make completely different stuff. And combined with our content limit freedom, we don't have to worry about advertising. We don't care if we get a huge viewership or not. We were never looking for the biggest audience for our shows, even for Sopranos, happened to get one, kind of surprised us. But you know, what we did for Curb Your Enthusiasm or The Wire or Girls or you know, uh, Oz or, you know, these are all different. They're, some of them were not aimed at a big audience. Some of them are aimed at this niche. Some of them are aimed at sure. that niche. But when you talk about it that way, it sounds like we were doing it to hit niches. No, that's not what we were doing. We were just trying to get shows that were really good, that, were, that we could get really good actors, writers, directors for, because nowhere else in television could they make a show like that. Because the, the other networks were all, well, how do we make this wider, more accessible? How do we dumb it down? How do we make sure that Pampers likes it and there's nothing in there? You know, all those constraints. But, but also your business model is much more tied to reducing churn than NBC, right? You can't well, cancel yeah, NBC. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, well, we wanted both things that would attract new subscribers. Yeah. And we wanted for the churn, it's not like we were sitting around saying, let's make this show to reduce churn. We never did that. That's uh -huh. not what we did. We basically said, all right, here's the, the, the on the original programming side, the, the motto basically was, we need something for everybody some of the time. It's like, we don't care if you're watching for the 30 days of the month. You want to watch it twice? Great. We just want you to watch it enough whenever you do that at the end of the month you say, you know what, I'm going to sign up, I'm going to keep this thing, I'm not going to throw it out because I like that show or I want, I, even if I don't watch the show, I want to have it available to me. And, and I remember when we got to the point where Sanders was ending and I knew, we all knew that, I should say not, we all knew that, uh, Jesus, we're screwed. We need, we need like a marquee thing. Yeah. So the, there was a great meeting um, about the Sex and the City Sopranos year when we had to green like that and we were about- 97? Yeah, yep. they were short about 70 million <laughs> for that. And um, basically we had this meeting and it was like the one in The Godfather where Sonny and Michael Corleone are thinking like, well, who says you can't kill a cop? You know, right. maybe, maybe you could do. And uh -huh. so, and we're all, you know, could quote the Godfather to each other. It's like, well, wait a minute, what? Do, who says we need an ad? But I'm, I was, I was the questioner. I was like, well, wait a minute, how much are we spending on ads? We're short. We need seventy million for Sopranos, Sex and the City. Eighty million. I said, okay, but if you, if we're getting people to want to buy HBO because of the ads, which we're never sure if that really does that. They call up the cable guy, say, I want to get HBO. And wh what does the cable person say? They say, well, you know, take off work two weeks from Thursday. We'll give you a window from one to five. You know, remember right. this? Yeah, it was sure. terrible. Yeah. So we're all there like, we're not sure this advertising works anyway. Yeah. Why don't we kill the ad budget? Why don't we just take away the ad budget 
and just make the shows the ads. How about the, uh, we'll do the, uh, the Sopranos and the Sex and the City. And Richard was running comps then. I said, well, don't we have some uh, news critic, you know, TV critics that would like a story like that? So HBO kills the ad budget, unlike all the other networks. We're not promoting the show. We're putting it on the screen. You know, maybe... So you uh, relied on word of mouth and, and yeah. critical reviews. Yeah, and thank God those shows... <laughs> thank Where God those things hit. Yeah. If they didn't hit, I don't know what the hell would have happened. I mean, uh -huh. Maybe we would have gone down, but they did. And um, that really gave us confidence. So after that, we're starting to do, you know, The Wire, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Six Feet Under. Sure. We really started to roll... And everything was just looking great until the parent company sold itself to AOL. Right. Okay. Phenomenal. So. And then, you know, all hell broke away. Do you remember roughly about how many subscribers you had in 95 and then how many subscribers you had in 2002? Uh, no, you can easily look it up. Yeah. But I, basically, what happened in 95, and it's not just the subject, it's the money. Yeah. We, between. Did you say 95 yeah, to 2002, let's yeah, say? Yeah, just, just your era. Yeah, yeah, because I know the, we yeah. took the earnings. We, we had been growing about 9% a year in earnings from 85 to 95. Okay. And for reasons that are, we'll go into if you want, we, we jacked up. the. We were able to increase the earnings from 95 to 2003 to about 19% a year. Okay which we did with mostly um, subscriber growth, therefore yep. more sub-revenue. Yep. I would think that the subscribers probably uh, doubled is probably too much. They probably went up 50% in that time. We also launched overseas. Okay. We also launched home video more aggressively. And so we were getting a lot of money from all of these sources and we were growing the sub-revenue, the overseas revenue, the home video revenue. And we really had a now a very clear blueprint of what we were going to do, which then carried on past 2002, even with AOL. And we even had to increase it to keep our independence from AOL in those turbulent years of 2001 to 2003 or 4. And that was a rough patch. It took us till 2009 to clear out the AOL um, which was a $160 billion, div, you know, you, what, what do you call a $160 billion uh, catastrophe? It's a big problem. Yeah, it's the worst <laughs> deal in the history of corporate America. Very big problem. Um, okay, AOL merges with Time Warner. What does, what does the AOL leadership say to you about why they want HBO? Is that even, do, do they want HBO? Well, How big they didn't, of a part they, of I don't recall the, them saying anything specific about, if you're them, and I'm now putting words probably in some of their mouths, they weren't all of the same mind, depending on which AOL <laughs> you talked to. Uh -huh. But they knew that they had had a rocket ship. When AOL merged with Time Warner, their earnings were, I don't know if they were a billion or two, their, their, their earnings were like less than a quarter of what Time Warner's earnings were. And yet their company was valued on the stock market at twice the value of Time Warner. So their, their valuation versus, you know, for a dollar of earnings, I think they were at 100 times earnings, yeah. something like that. Yeah. 
which of course, if you know <coughs> business Reasonable. math, that means yeah. that it has to grow at an unrecognizable rate forever. Yes. They knew that they needed to use their very highly valued stock while it was highly valued to acquire either eBay or Time Warner or something. So that's the number one reason I think they did. And they wanted it to be in something that could help them. And what was their number one problem? Their problem was that the whole AOL business was running on narrowband telephone lines onto yeah. a modem. It wasn't the internet. Yep. When you connected to it, you were connected to their server. And they needed to get on broadband. So they were trying to figure out how do we get right. the thing and on Right, and at the time, Time Warner Cable was a part of Time Warner. And, the, and so they thought, well, why don't we buy Time Warner Cable along with everything else there, and then we'll put AOL over as the broadband offering. The problem with that, which makes some sense, is that every cable, Time Warner Cable was only 15% of the nation, and every cable operator that wasn't Time Warner Cable was charging $30, $40 a month, then it became 100 for that broadband connection. And AOL wanted to take the whole, you know, all the monthly fees that households were paying for the broadband connection and ship it to Dulles for AOL. And of course, no cable operator wanted to do it, and neither did the one that was running Time Warner Cable inside the company. So w there was a big argument at the board level, which caused Jerry Levin to end up sideways with the AOL majority on the board. Jerry was right about this, which was, no, no, it, it's not just because we own our own cable system doesn't mean we should confiscate the money that it takes to pay for the physical plant. Because if you do that, it's going to mean every other cable system in America will look at AOL like it's an alien invasion from outer space and the destruction of their entire business. Right. They can't fund their plant, which is exactly what happened. That's why they never made it to broadband. So AOL, in terms of HBO, though, was sort of an, an afterthought. I mean, it was like, yeah, 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 it comes along with the deal, but we don't really. Well, they, here, they look, we, they like people magging AOL. They like Warner Brothers basically saying, why don't you take all your advertising and put it on AOL? And we were all saying, well, we need to advertise in other places than just on AOL. Yeah. I mean, we're happy to advertise on AOL, but sure. it's not the only place. And secondly, they were trying to figure out how to stay there. They remember, they had a $25 a month subscription fee for hooking up to AOL. And Yahoo had a free version of the exact same thing. So their subscribers, which is how they got all their money, $8 billion of revenue, were starting to look at Yahoo and say, why am I paying for this when I could get roughly the same thing there? Yeah. And AOL was trying to figure out, well, what if we put some of the Time Warner stuff, People Magazine, HBO, maybe a movie, I don't know, whatever. Maybe we should put it in behind AOL's wall so that you could only get this thing if you subscribe to AOL. Yeah. To which we all said, no, that's not going to work. You can, but first of all, all of our products, whether it's the magazines, whether it's the Warner movies, whether it's HBO, they're all number one in their field because they're on every newsstand, they're in every distribution channel. If you turn it to an in-house thing, all of our talent that brings it here because they want it to go everywhere, it's going to go away. Yeah. It's not sustainable because we don't own Columbia Pictures, Paramount, Fox. You can't get everybody's thing like that. Yahoo can. 
and they will. So this is, this is not, basically what we were confronted with is the reality that the uh, walled garden model of AOL subscriptions that had worked in the narrowband telephone era was not gonna work in broadband because there are too many other competitors that would give it to people for free and eventually the internet would come and all of the content providers, all the magazine companies, the television networks, the movies, we're going to end up going that way. How I'll jump back in time here, but how ironic was it for you that 15 years later you were having the same, we can't do the walled garden approach with AT&T with the same company? I mean, well, I remember you having those discussions about being like, they can't do that. You can't make all this stuff exclusive to AT&T customers. That, well, they never tried. They never tried to their to So, their uh, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't recall that coming up. Yeah, they never tried. People um, asked about it, though, certainly. Yeah, and people have written as, about it yeah. as though it would be something you could do. Right. But it's not realistic. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so I want to I go back in time now. 2006-ish. I believe there's a discussion where uh, Time Warner, HBO included, thinks about buying Netflix. Do you remember that? Well, uh, yeah, that they write about this in the Tinderbox book. Right. There were people in the, but here's the problem with that. I don't think, you know, yeah, is that a good question? Even at AOL, by the way, credit to AOL. There were people at AOL, Barry Shul or Ted Leonsis, in 2001 who were thinking, you know, maybe we ought to buy Netflix. And maybe we should have back then. Back then, Netflix was selling movies, you know, through the mail. Right. And they which were they, very, which, you know, yeah, valuation and they, was and below, kept, well they, below a billion dollars. They kept doing that. And they didn't start the streaming thing until 2010. Yep. And the reason they didn't, which is why when you ask about 06, I've got to scratch my head a little. There was no broadband sufficient to do Netflix video over the internet uh -huh. until about 2010. So if you go back to 2005 or six, you got a mail order movie thing. And they weren't trying to sell. So while there may have been meetings, and I've read about them in yep. some of the books about HBO, and some of them I ended up in um, as the Time Warner guy at yep. that point. Netflix wasn't trying to sell in 2005 or six, And so I don't think that was realistic. So if somebody's saying, well, we could have and should have, no, we couldn't have. <laughs> so that's the first thing. It's, kind of, it's a moot yep. thing. It's not yep. realistic. The second thing is, if it had been literally on the table, let's say they did want to sell, and we certainly could have considered buying it, and it's clear in hindsight that would have been a very smart thing to do, probably. But there's two things you got to remember. Our shareholders at that point in 2006 had lost $165 billion on the AOL internet play. And we still had AOL. And it was still going like this for another three years. Yeah. So if the management of Time Warner, which had been replaced, it was the old AOL one that had majority, was left because of the mess of AOL and O2, that would not have been something that our shareholders would have tolerated, even if it was a good idea. So 2015 comes around. Now we're in the era of, okay, actually, let's take a year back. 
Fox comes along, makes a hostile offer for Time Warner. 2014. 2014, exactly. So between 2008 and 2000, when, when all the spins happen, 2014, your financial performance at Time Warner up. We, we were going up 24% a year. A year. We, we did it for 11 years. Right. Yeah. Fox comes along. You, you guys say no. Right. That, in essence, puts the company in play for the next one and a half to two years. Correct? Uh, no. You don't think so? No. Okay. It, because the reason I say that is you, you hit a target at that point. Because you said no. They put a valuation on you and you said no. We can get there on our own. Yeah. So well, then you should first of all the quote valuation they put on was uh, fake. Okay. So okay. what they said, if you to bore everybody, we were trading around seventy bucks a share, and they offered what they said was eighty-five dollars a share, yes. and it was fifty roughly of stock of theirs and thirty or so of debt of uh, debt. Cash, sorry, cash. So if you look at it, their stock, which they they had, their company was smaller, roughly even in earnings than we were, and their stock was trading at 25% premium because they had projected earnings growth of 50% in three years, which we knew perfectly well they weren't going to do. Uh -huh. And so it's not like we're going to accept their stock. Let's say we took the deal, and then watch their stock collapse because they never were going to reach those earnings things, which is exactly what happened in the month or two that we had this fight, because everybody finally realized it. Secondly, the cash part they were going to give us, 32 bucks a share, was premised on borrowing $10 billion on our assets. So when I was talking privately to Rupert and Chase, I was telling them, no, we're not doing this. It, it, first of all, it's not worth $85 a share. It's worth $68 a share. You know it, and I know it. Uh -huh. And we're trading at 70 now, so we're not selling you the company for you know for, for nothing. Number one, and number two, when you raise it, which you're going to have to consider doing when we say no, to 95 or 100 or whatever you're going to make up, you don't have the money. Because all you're going to do is give us more of this overvalued stock, or you're going to borrow more money. We, we can do that ourselves. We don't need that. So the problem is, which is actually what I said to Rupert um, directly, because I I, of course I want to restate for the antitrust records <laughs> that you can, or any whatever SEC record, you cannot, and of course it would be wrong to uh, not welcome anybody offering your shareholders money, sure. which I'm always open to doing. I like to convey to the shareholders what money they are actually being offered. So you can do it. I said, but as you keep doing it, here's your problem. You don't, there's no price that you can afford that we would accept, because you don't have, it's literally you're trying to buy a dinner that you don't have money for the dinner. You can't do it. In those conversations with Rupert and Chase, did they bring up HBO to you? They say, hey, this is what we want to do with HBO. No, that's not what they were doing. Okay. They, were, they knew that the scale game needed to come just as we did. And so they just didn't have the money, so they went. We then went back to our uh, cave, where we are, <laughs> our rooms, and said, board and the management, well, are we in clear skies now? because we just beat, and let me, by the way, when News Corp did this, they started at $35 a share. That had been their trading value. 
they, they went down to 25 when the spotlights came on, which is a 40% loss of their, stock, their company value. They stayed there for three to four years. So that sh everybody should dwell on that. To your point, did that put us in play? No. We had clearly taken any, any um, plausible predator out. It would just cost too much money unless whoever came to us was actually going to solve this problem. And that gets to your next year, which is what was the problem right. for legacy media, not just us, but everybody. So what was the problem, and then why did AT&T think that buying your company was the right solution? Well, you're going to have to ask them, because what I was interested in, or we were on our, what we were interested in our side was, is it good for us and our shareholders for them to pay us $110 billion dollars? or $108 a share for the company. And that was all cash? No, no, it was half cash and half yeah, stock. Gotcha. Yeah. But that stock traded like a bond because it had a 6% right. uh, dividend. Yes, up. gotcha. So um, if, what was the problem is the thing you're trying to sort out. So yeah. now we're in the period of 2015 on. And you now have clarity that the Netflix and Amazon streaming pay TV companies. They're doing exactly what HBO's doing, but they're doing it over broadband. And that, has, that means there's two major things there. One is that they don't pay carriage fees, unlike HBO, Showtime, CNN. And that, what that means is when you write a check as, a, as an HBO household for $15 to get HBO, only about nine of it goes to HBO. The other six or seven, half of it, 40, 50%, goes to the cable or satellite company that puts it in your home. Netflix didn't have that. They were using the exact same wire into the home we were, but we had to pay for it under the old wholesale model, and they were using net neutrality broadband to get through. So we were actually paying their carriage fee. In Time Warner's case, that's $8 billion a year that we were spending out of CNN, TNT, HBO receipts that we had to leave with the cable operator and Netflix could just take all that straight to their bottom line. Yes. Second problem was they didn't have to make earnings in that period because their investor base understood that they were building a global scale lead monopoly position or hoped for a monopoly and that they would eventually raise, once they got into a share position that could afford then to buy out all the programming back to the Albanian army, they could then raise the price, which they did. They raised it from $7 then to $15 now, just like we did, which we knew they would eventually do. But they didn't need the money then. So the problem is that's another $8 billion in Time Warner's case. So we're talking inside our boardroom that, to say, Hey, we've got a great business. We've been growing 25% a year, earnings per share for 11 years. We make $8 billion, and the two new competitors are, they have a $15, $16 billion head start on us every single year. It will grow, and there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, pretty soon it'll be $20 billion, you know? And if you went to our 
shareholders, which were, let's say, 40 some odd percent, maybe 40, 50, are institutional shareholders. You know, big companies like Capital Research, Cox, Vanguard, et cetera. If you're the chief executive, you go talk to them because they each own four, five, six percent of, an, of Time Warner, as they also own Disney. And if you say to them, would you like to uh, support us if we cut our earnings to go into the streaming business and try to take all these networks, Turner's included, and make them like the global Amazon Netflix model. We know how to do it. We, it just costs a lot of money. We've got to spend more on program. We have to do a tech stack. We have to take losses for years like they have. And their answer, of course, was, of course we're not doing that. Yeah. We own Netflix and Amazon already. That's right. the other half of our portfolio. They don't make money now. They'll make it later. You're the part that makes it now. And please keep doing that. So AT&T buys HBO. You leave. You leave Time Warner. AT&T makes the decision to turn HBO, uh, uh, or I shouldn't say turn it, but to reimagine HBO in part by coming up with HBO Max, where they're going to have HBO and it's going to be a part of a streaming service. We'll call it HBO, but we'll also include this other programming. At the time, there are people in HBO who say that is the wrong decision. All you should do is just supercharge HBO. Leave HBO alone. Where do you come out in that debate? You know, I think it's unattractive for departed executives to to talk about what the diplomatic people, answer. <laughs> what the old what the other people did. I think what we did up to there is clear. I sympathize with the uh, all the manner, not just ATTs, but. Everybody that's got a legacy media company, which has a lot of basic, formerly basic TV bundle channels, you know, not the HBO Showtime types, but the other one, they have a very challenging transition to make. And the, you know, some of them, like sports channels, uh, have, and news channels, have a different prospect of how they could become streaming world a la carte options. But the bundling of the, you know, the, the idea that we used to have 10 years ago were the news channels and the general entertainment channels and the kids channels and the, you know, the cooking and lifestyle channels were all kind of there as an option available in every home, supported by advertising and by the subscription aggregate fee. That can't continue in the streaming world because people will want to do a la carte, which they've been asking for for a long time. I'm thinking about a bunch of recent big media mergers, whether it's Scripps and Discovery or Viacom and CBS or Disney and Fox or AT&T and Time Warner. And people keep talking about how there's going to be more consolidation. It's inevitable. But you look at all of those deals they're major shareholder losers, one after another after another. Well, it's a bit of a different point. So you, if, you, if we try to uh, describe that or attribute that, the losers, the loss of value, to the merger, that's probably not the main reason for the loss of value. The main reason is the one that's, that's uh, nobody's fault or else let's give the credit 
to Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook, the disruptors. What's happened is the legacy media industry that was hugely profitable, you look at the profit margins of the basic cable and you know the basic cable, cable networks, the pay TV networks like HBO, and the companies like Warner, Disney, Fox, that lived in that world for 30 years, the margins for all of our companies were way above the norm for long-term industry profit margins. Yeah. So one thing you would learn, you know, it's an old saying in economics, if something can't go on forever, it'll probably stop. Well, it did. This is exact. so, you know, if you really go to the big picture on our side, we knew, we saw all this. We, you know, we saw Netflix take the Warner side of it. So Warner's best library in the world, TV shows and movies. How, did, how does Warner's work? Well, it licenses shows to, you know, either movies or TV shows to networks, whether it's broadcast networks or pay TV one. And eventually those things go back into the library, right? They're held by Warner. They get to be re-licensed all over the world in cycles. Seinfeld and Friends are in their third or fourth cycles. They're sure. making a lot of money. But that's because the rights property, the, the, the copyrights were owned by the studio. So about 10 years ago, maybe a little more, Netflix started as the lead pay TV digital distributed company to say, no, we're not gonna put your show on our Netflix service. We're the biggest, if you want it, you wanna get the most of money, the biggest check. If you wanna have it in the most homes, you wanna get it all over the world, because we're the biggest global, we can write you the biggest check. But we'll give you all the costs, plus a guaranteed profit, I think they started at 20%, but we're gonna own it in perpetuity, not you. Well, as soon as we saw that, that's another reason we thought, now we're in a different subject, the erosion of the Hollywood studio libraries. It's like, well, we're not gonna become a studio for hire. We were, a, we were an intellectual property company. If the intellectual property is gonna be transferred to Amazon and Netflix, that is not uh, a good situation for us to finance. So what that means, back to your question of why don't the mergers work, it's not that the mergers don't work, it's that the value of both the IP business being sucked out to the streamers and the lower profit that Netflix and Amazon set for the streaming business as the leaders means that there's just not gonna be profit available to the companies that survive. Last question, David Zaslav runs the company that owns HBO now. He has a lot of other media assets in there with HBO. I would be remiss not to ask you, if you were in David Zaslav's position, what would you do with that company? Well, I hate to give advice to David. Um, I, I'm sure you do privately. Well, he's, I, well that's true. So <laughs> because, because, I, um, because I do, I shouldn't do it publicly. I, I mean, I think uh, I'm gonna leave it to him. I think he knows where to go with it. Uh, and if he doesn't, he'll find out. So one thing to remember is that in the current moment, like I forget, the thing closed in April of uh, last year. So they can't do anything under the reverse Morris Trust rules until 
two years, is it two years? Correct, so yeah, next from year. Now. So that's a hint. That's a hint, that's yeah. a hint. So if you don't understand that hint, it means <laughs> the company will probably have to get bigger and there'll be another merger to come here. Well, uh, because look, look, if you have, forget the uh, individual companies, if you have an overall industry profit pool that's smaller than what all the legacy vestigial pieces used to live off of, it has to consolidate. Yeah. It has to. Yeah. 